What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. As you know, we normally drop these in between our full All of the Above episodes, but we're on a little bit of a, I don't know if we would call it a, a break or a hiatus, Jeff, or just a, we'll get back to those as soon as we can type of situation right now with our full episodes because, man, folks, we are just, we are quite busy. There is a lot going on right now in our lives, in our professional lives and personal lives, uh, but we will get back to those full episodes with dope guests and all that good stuff as soon as we can. And I am Manuel Reston, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and these passing periods are just so much easier to produce. It doesn't take nearly as much time, does it, Jeff? No, I mean, I tell you, for me, it's, uh, you know, I, it's, it's many hours of, uh, of labor um, either way. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I can't even keep a straight face. Uh, Manuel <laughs> is the editing genius behind this show in all, in all forms. Um, so, uh, yes, these are, these are, what would you say, Manuel? 10, 10% of the work of a video episode? Or, or, or would you say... A different number. Um, that's probably about right. That's probably about right. You, normally with the video episodes, because, you know, we want to put out a really good product, folks. We want stuff, you know, for those who actually watch the video, we want it to, you know, be worth worth watching. And usually I'd spend like two or three hours a day after work editing that and getting that going. So these passing periods don't take nearly as long. In fact, yeah. we record these usually on a Saturday morning and sometimes they post the same day because it doesn't take as long. Although I am missing some college football right now, but it's worth it. It's worth it to be back with the ALTA family. Yeah. I heard I heard Alabama and Texas are tied 10-10 at the half. And that ladies and gentlemen is what we call uh unwisely uh, putting information into your podcast that makes it sound instantly <laughs> old and out of date. <laughs> like, didn't they play two days ago? Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, have, I actually have a former student, a recent former student who uh, plays for Texas. So shout out to Jameer. And I did watch the beginning. Nice. And looks like Alabama injured um, Texas's quarterback. So it's a backup situation. So we'll see how ugly the score might be when this podcast is over. And our Bruins play later on today, Jeff. Actually. Actually, it's important for me to know. I know this isn't a sports podcast. Bear with me just for a second. I just want to point out that UCLA is actually playing against Alabama, air quotes, Alabama, uh, two weeks in a row. We have uh, Alabama State this week and Alabama Southern or Southern Alabama next week. Not too many college programs that have the courage to play, to face off against Alabama two weeks in a row, Jeff. I just want, you know, give them some credit. Oh, that's funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I will, I will take a different angle on what you just said, Manuel, which is, I like how you use the phrase hour when you, uh, when you talked about well, yeah. uh, you, the UCLA Bruins and I am, although not a UCLA graduate, at least at this point in my life, uh, I work pretty closely with UCLA and I oversee, uh, a program of aspiring school leaders who, uh, who earn their credential and their, administra their administrative credential and their master's degree uh, with UCLA. So shout out to uh, all of the fantastic faculty and uh, staff and students at um, UCLA's Principal Leadership Institute. Um, good, good friends over there. Uh, and also, Manuel, uh, I have a close family member who is moving to Los Angeles, I have finally succeeded in recruiting <laughs> one of them okay. to come here. Uh, and 
and uh, is going to be working at UCLA. So we are officially going nice. to have a, a Bruin in the family, man. Nice. So, uh, so I feel like my UCLA down by association ties have just, uh, you know, I've gone from like level level six to like level nine now. That is that is fantastic. Uh, congrats on that. That is really really dope. And of course, you know, we have to remind folks that UCLA is the world's number one public university. Um, not that we believe in rankings and all that stuff, but you know, we'll believe in them when they work out in our favor. Uh, exactly. Um, so there's that. And of course, folks, it's been about uh, I don't know two weeks. We didn't record last uh, weekend during Labor Day weekend. And before we get into it for this passing period, uh, I just think we have to like really just. Point out the fact that um, we did lose a, a very important beacon of humanity and human progress um, this week. And that loss, of course, is all the lost learning that has been suffered by students during the pandemic. Because test scores are out, Jeff. Test scores are out. Learning has been lost, officially lost. Mm. It's gone. It's wiped away into the ether. And... We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. We got NAEP scores. We got um, SBAC scores for Los Angeles Unified, which is the nation's second largest school district. They just released their uh, results of their state assessment from last year, uh, last spring, I should say. And um, that just came out yesterday. And there's a lot going on there, Jeff. And I just don't know how we're going to deal with all this loss. So much lost. So much lost, Jeff. What are we going to do? There is so much lost. I feel like this is the moment where like, uh, like taps should play and and it, we should have a somber moment uh to recognize the the learning loss uh you know that you know has plagued us uh okay so i think i have like two angles of attack on this on this conversation here manuel one is i am not a universally anti standardized test person and the angle of standardized testing that we're going to look at today is, I think, actually the most useful uh, purpose for standardized tests, which is to make comparisons across large populations, because it's very difficult to do that, right? To like assess how right. are the nation's thousands and thousands and thousands of schools doing with like a oral presentation type of assessment, say, or a, you know, have the students perform a play or something, right? Which could be rich in a wonderful form of assessment, but like it's really hard to do that with, you know, across a massive sample of the nation's fourth, eighth, and 12th graders, for, for example, yeah. right? So this is why I actually think standardized assessment is a helpful learning tool for us to understand how things are going. And I don't think just because we pretty rampantly misuse and abuse standardized testing that that means that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater necessarily. Although there's probably a good argument to say, you know, if we continually <laughs> misuse and abuse them, maybe we should just throw them out. But I am personally not in that, uh, not in that position. So I actually find some of the data very interesting. Right to think about, okay, what is happening at scale across a very large system like Los Angeles Unified, or across the nation, like we see with the um, you know the nation's report card demonstrating the the NAEP results. So that's that's kind of like angle one, right? Is like this is interesting data. We should look at it. We should talk about it. Angle two is. Oh my God! If I hear one more learning loss hawk talk about learning loss with uh, with like the 
just the, the, the frustrating air of judgment and condemnation towards educators and towards public school systems generally, while also simultaneously not doing anything to help the equation or not supporting policies that actually address equity for any of the populations that they only seem to name and care about equity for when we're talking about standardized test scores, but not when we're talking about like what happens when these kids go home and have to live in substandard housing or have to you know not have access to clean water or don't have enough money to feed themselves or don't have enough money to keep a phone on so their parents can talk to people at the school you know consistently throughout the course of a school year let alone their entire K12 education so if I have to hear these learning loss hawks keep talking out both sides of their mouth about how they care so much about learning loss and how urgent the problem is, while they obviously give zero Fs about the students and the communities that we serve, I'm going to like mash my head through a wall. <laughs> well, I'm so tired. Of but the hearing. learning was lost, Jeff. The learning was lost <laughs> into the ether. It's gone forever, oh, Jeff. Two God. decades of growth. Two decades, according to the, the headline in the 74, two right. decades of growth <laughs> for American students in reading and math were wiped away. That's the word choice they went with. Wiped away by just two years of pandemic. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Jeff, I, it's, it's a big deal, man. You can't, you know, it, it's, it matters, man. It's gone forever. It will never come back. It will never come back. And the moral of the story is the teachers are bad. The teachers are lazy. Uh, the, you know, the principals are maybe not quite as bad and lazy as the teachers, but let's be real. They're also bad and lazy. Um, and, you know, public schools in general are failing. They're broken to the core. And um, even though we say out on, you know, on the one hand, even with this massive amount of learning loss from the pandemic, our schools are still doing better than they were in the 70s. We're going to pull a Trump and say we got to make a school great again by making it like it was back in the day when it was so great. You mean like back in the day when even after a horrible pandemic with a million deaths in this country uh, and, you know, school having to shut down and everyone living under a massive economic recession and people losing jobs and kids and families getting sick, even after that, we're still doing better with a much larger, more diverse, more unique in terms of special needs, a system that's aiming higher in terms of not just churning out kids to, to get minimum standards and graduate, but our mission has shifted to actually preparing all students for college and career. That even with all that that's happened, we're still doing better than the schools were doing 50 years ago. But somehow you can both blame us for everything <laughs> that has happened and want to return to the good old days, which never existed in the first place. So this this is where we are, man. <laughs> it was like just a, yeah. just like this bizarro world of discourse about education that drives me freaking nuts, man. It is very bizarro. And you don't even have to go back 50 years. Like I'm looking at the and we'll get into the numbers in a moment, folks, for anybody that that might have missed it. But like I'm looking at the reading assessment scores and I'm thinking about the year that you and I graduated high school. And like despite everything, despite the pandemic, despite all the things you just pointed out, despite the global catastrophes befallen us from uh, climate change to political strife and all that, like even with this severe 
crazy, unprecedented drop. The scores are still higher than they were like for our class, for our generation. So it's just like, um, how how bad is it then? Because it seems like this, it seems like they should be lower than they are if you really factor in all of all of what has happened. And you know, I saw a headline in the Washington Post this week that 10.5 million children. 10.5 million globally lost a parent or caregiver during this pandemic. So when you take all that into account, it's like, it's kind of a miracle that scores, they're still higher than when you and I were in school, Jeff. And, you know, they have every reason to be lower, yet they're not. So there's that. But in any case, Jeff, so how big of a drop are we talking about? Um, this, this learning loss that has wiped away decades and decades of growth. Like, what's that actually look like in terms of like the numbers we have so far? Yeah, so um, let's let's take two different uh, tacks on this, Manuel. Um, so with the NAEP, let's let's start there first. Uh, so the National Center, uh, Center for Education um, Statistics released a report on September first, um, and they have uh, actually a really interesting data set comparing the performance. Uh, and reading and math of nine-year-old students between 2020 and 2022. And so the NAEP has like sort of different versions or different different uh, manifestations of it, I guess you might say. NAEP right. stands for National Assessment of Education Progress, and they have what's called the LTT or the Long-Term Trend Assessment. So those results were released uh, last week. And... Um, and so the headline, of course, right, is like we've seen the steepest declines on a single comparative assessment that we've seen in that program in the last uh, 50 years, right? Now, that's both sobering and also like, of course, we knew it, we knew it was coming, right, from the pandemic. Gas is $59 a gallon. Uh, you know, people can't afford groceries, right? Like everything got a little bit shittier except for like the flexibility of working from home on Zoom <laughs> over the course of the pandemic. Pretty much everything yeah. else got a little worse, right? Um, education is not uh, free from those consequences. So specifically, uh, when we dig into this data here, the average reading score for nine-year-olds declined five points between 2020 and 2022. Um, the reading scores for lower-performing nine-year-old students um, who were at the 10th and 25th percentiles, respectively, declined 10 points and eight points um, over that same period. Uh, reading scores also declined for students at the 50th percentile and the 75th percentile and the 90th percentile. So we're seeing pretty much slips across the board and also some widening of what we typically would call the achievement gaps um, in terms of performance between the kind of haves, the kids who were already higher performing, and the have-nots, the kids who were um, already lower performing. Um, on the math side, the average math scores declined seven points since 2020. Um, the scores for lower performing nine-year-old students declined 12 points and 11 points, uh, respectively, over the same period. And uh, likewise, scores declined for kids at the 50th percentile, the 75th percentile, and the 90th percentile. Similar to with, uh, with reading, we saw smaller slips for the higher performing students, generally speaking, than we saw for the lower performing students. So basically, the scores went down, went down significantly, brought us back, quote unquote, in terms of achievement levels. Uh, many years, uh, right, in terms of uh, where we had gotten to, uh, you know, with growth. Um, and we saw some exacerbation of 
uh, of gaps between the students who are already performing the highest, which we know are disproportionately wealthier, disproportionately whiter, um, also uh, depending on the slice of the population we're looking at, disproportionately Asian um, in our country as well. Um, and so this is obviously not good news, right? Like this, this is data that in my opinion, like tells us some stuff and we should be paying attention to it and we should be making policy decisions that respond accordingly. Because what we have here is a widening equity issue that we that should cause us to say, hey, there are greater needs in some areas. What are those needs and how can we best resource them and support them uh, to help students grow, thrive, learn, recover from what has been a very, very difficult few years? Um, and I fear, Manuel, that what we are veering towards instead is a repeat of No Child Left Behind with double blocks of ELA and math for all these kids. Um, you know, in the short term, there's going to be shiny new devices and cool programs and things because uh, there's, you know, there's extra money from the federal government. But a few years from now, that stuff's going to all disappear. And we are going to be left with just the double blocks of ELA and math and lots and lots of extra testing, which will be both boring and excruciatingly not good for kids and uh, do things like drive educators out of the profession. Yeah, um, pretty much, pretty much. And I think a very strong feature of capitalism is the fact that when there is some sort of chaos or disruption or something, quote unquote, bad happens, there's all these opportunists who are then able to profit from that. So we're talking, you know, folks who are going to try to financially profit from this with all kinds of new reading programs and math programs and this and that, whatever. There's going to be all kinds of uh, political folks trying to cash in on this in terms of uh, trying to get their way in terms of what they think needs to happen within the education system. I'm sure I'm, I, I haven't looked in, into this, but I'm just assuming DeSantis has said something about this or his folks have said something about this and how these scores prove that public schools, this, that, whatever. There's all these opportunities that are going to come in. And um, that that is worrisome for those of us who care about humanizing pedagogy, that care about schools that serve all children and build students up and lift students up. That is very concerning what's likely to happen. Because you and I, Jeff, have been mentioning this for a while, this concern that we had that learning loss is going to be weaponized into what you just referred to, like the double blocks, this, that, whatever. We've been saying that for a long time. And, you know, folks have been getting ready to weaponize it. But up until now, they've only had anecdotal data. They, they haven't really had numbers to point to, to, you know, support their cause or support their case that uh, the school, quote unquote, closures and all that stuff that happened during that pandemic were, were going to be damaging to learning. Now they have numbers to point to. They can point to these numbers and say, see, we told you, we told you. So I've already seen a lot of folks, the folks who are arguing that schools needed to remain like physically open for their students, uh, that open schools crowd has been like just celebrating all week, looking at this, saying that, look, see, we proved, uh, we, we were right, we were right. You, you close the schools and look what happened, look what happened. Even though, even though uh, the numbers don't support that at all. Cause like, you know, you look at uh, the data across different regions and some of the regions that kept schools quote unquote, closed, some of the ones that stuck to virtual learning the longest, like California, um, their scores didn't drop as much as some of the other areas that have, uh, that opened up, quote unquote, opened up their schools um, more quickly. So, it, you know, it doesn't add up, but this is something just, this is what capitalism does. You see a problem and everybody uh, goes into it with their own angle and tries to uh, use it to support their own case. And you mentioned double blocks of math and English. I, I remember that 
really clearly earlier in my teaching, uh, having students who had extra math, extra English, and didn't have electives because of their test scores, this, that, whatever. Um, I, I would challenge you, Jeff, to consider the possibility that maybe double blocks aren't enough. Maybe we're talking triple blocks. Yeah. Triple blocks of math, triple blocks of English, because look at these scores. It's just all bad. And that is that is really worrisome. Well, you know, you know where we can find those triple blocks, Manuel. Where? It's pretty easy. Uh, P.E. Don't need that. Art. Definitely. Definitely don't. don't need that. That's hippie liberal nonsense right there. I mean, that's definitely Marxist. Talk, talk about brainwashing the kids. <laughs> no art for you. Uh, history. If all we're going to do is teach the 1619 project, let's get rid of that. We can read the 1776 Gone. project in English. Okay. In English, not in Spanish. Right, or Mandarin, or one of those languages, only in English, okay? And it'll uh, only take like 20 or 30 minutes, because that joint was like eight pages of yeah. nonsense. When yeah, did it yeah. take that long? Science, yeah. bunch of climate change propaganda, Chinese conspiracy, last I checked. So that's four hours a day, right there, of those subjects for many kids. We can turn that into ELA and math test prep, uh, you know, maybe pause once or twice a year for like some SAT, ACT prep, uh, and... Problem solved. Uh, it's just all facts, and I don't know how anyone <laughs> could dispute. There's literally, literally nothing controversial in uh, what you just said there. But um, I will say, though, obviously, it is concerning when we see data, even problematic data like this. I mean, this students, uh, we don't even need to get into all the different ways in which uh, standardized assessments generally, but also specifically pandemic era assessments um, are problematic in, in a lot of ways. But certainly there is concern when you see some of the trends that we see, such as the um, the divide, if you want to call it that, between black and white students um, widening even more during, during the pandemic. And one word that has been used a lot, and I, I think you used it just a few moments ago, Jeff, uh, exacerbate in just the fact that the pandemic exacerbated existing inequities within our systems. Yes, there has been a, a divide between uh, black student achievement and white student achievement, whatever indicator you want to look at in terms of the standardized indicators for a while. And that got bigger in, in during this pandemic or whatever, it, it was exacerbated. Exacerbate is a word that I'm tired of hearing because I've heard it so much, but it is it is the correct word. <laughs> like we need new words, but that is that is what happened. Like all the issues that we had prior to the pandemic, they just widened. The economic issues, the economic struggles, all that widened. And I'm gonna I'm gonna find some synonyms for exacerbate because we need to keep hammering home that message that this stuff is it was not None of this is surprising. We knew this was happening. But um, let's see. Exacerbate. Synonyms. I'm on thesaurus.com. Aggravate. <laughs> certainly. Certainly the pandemic aggravated existing uh, inequities. Annoy. I would, no, annoy is not, not strong enough. Ooh, inflame. Inflamed mm. existing disparities. All of that. All of that is true. And when you think about, okay, so what do we do now? Obviously, no one here at all of the above would advocate for double blocks or triple blocks or quadruple blocks of English and math and, and all that. Uh, first things first, certainly we have to address the actual economic divides, the actual economic gaps that exist throughout our society. Because like, it's hard for me to take seriously any notion of, of achievement gap when like the economic gap has just grown and has been there persistently since the beginning. So until we actually get to a place where 
every young person is housed. Every young person has a healthy living environment, has access to quality health care, has just all of the things that are needed until we get past. Like we still see headlines of like Jackson, Mississippi now can't drink their water. Water's trash. Water's poisonous, basically. And oh, yeah, guess what? Jackson, Mississippi, predominantly black. Like we, we're st- we still don't even have clean water across communities of color. Yet I'm supposed to take seriously the um, few points drop in reading or math. Like we have to address all of that, all the existential threats that young people are dealing with. We already know marginalized communities are going to be the first ones or have been the first ones affected by climate change. This week, we didn't even have, you speaking of PE, we didn't even have PE this last week and a half because it was too hot. It was like 105 degrees outside for 10 days straight. Can't even have PE in that environment. The kids were all in the cafeteria um, doing some supplemental work. And it's just, uh, we have to address all of these things in order to be serious about boosting achievement. If we're not addressing those things, like the achievement discussion really just has no footing. It has no place. So yeah, we will see. I don't know, man. It's going to be, it's going to be a whole lot of, a whole lot of hot takes, a whole lot of political positioning, a whole lot of nonsense and a whole lot of profiteering off of the heels of these uh, test scores coming out. Yeah. I do want to give a little bit of props, Manuel. In the press release from NCES, uh, Commissioner Peggy Carr had a quote that I think actually, honestly, to me, was like one of the more responsible things I've I've seen said from someone at that level of position uh, in this conversation. She said, quote, school shootings, violence and classroom disruptions are up as are teacher and staff vacancies, absenteeism, cyberbullying, and students' use of mental health services. This information provides some important context for the results we're seeing from the long-term trend assessment, end quote. Okay? Yeah. I, I thought that was an excellent statement, right? She didn't say, hey, these things are happening and therefore we shouldn't pay attention to learning or, or this data in any way at all. She just said hey, we got to look at this data next to the context of what's going on. And together, these things should help inform us on what we need to do in response to the data, right? And of course, there is a component of it that's about what's happening first period in English and what's happening second period in history and what's happening in reading block in kindergarten classes or whatever, right? Of course. And also absenteeism, illness, teacher shortage, cyberbullying, mental health services that folks can't get enough access to, unemployment at home, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like these are all collective issues and we have to speak about them intersectionally in that way if we're actually going to make significant progress towards towards some solutions here. So I actually really appreciated that that statement and to me it strikes like the kind of the the point in the conversation we actually need to get to um so which to me is not it, it is neither double blocks of ela and math or standard t- standardized tests are useless we shouldn't even look at them it is we see a big picture in front of us of what's going on and what should we do about it and i you know i would throw out a couple of ideas manuel of like responses that i would hope that we would see here so one is from the from the policymaker level, where these folks are are not able to really you know directly influence what's happening in schools necessarily, but they do have huge influence over dollars and budgets. 
We need to take off the plate of school systems immediately. The impending fiscal cliff two, three years from now when the all the federal money dries up from, from COVID stuff. And um, as we know, there are declining enrollments in a number of school systems, right? There, there already were impending fiscal cliff uh, financial situations coming up. We need to take that off the plate uh, of everyone here completely. Second of all, I think we need to then say, okay, if what we are seeing, if we can generally, even at some level, accept that what we are seeing in these test scores is evidence that students have slipped in their knowledge and skills with regard to at least reading and math, right? Generally speaking. Um, then the question is, how do we improve student learning in reading and math? And the answer is most definitely not doubling down on test prep, doing things that exacerbate, uh, you know, students feeling disengaged from school, right? What we should do is double down on joy, fun, and engagement in school, right? So this is the time for double blocks of art. <laughs> this is the time for more theater programs. This is the time for sports programs to, you know, to expand, right? Uh, to include more kids. This is the time for science clubs, GSAs, all the stuff that excites kids about coming to school and that gives them a sense of community, a sense of fun, a sense of, of like a mini environment in which some of the real world stuff where we actually get to apply our learnings in schools, our creativity, our, you know, our management of relationships with other people, uh, event planning and, and working on big projects, um, authentic assessment of one's skills by presenting in front of your peers or parents or community members or those sorts of things. We need more and more of this kind of stuff, right? Um, and that, of course, doesn't mean that we don't continue to push hard on having great tier one instruction in front of every kid every day in every class, right? I support that fully. And we have to make sure school is a place where kids want to come every day, where they wake up in the morning and they're like, oh man, yeah, today's Wednesday. I have Dr. Rustin's hip hop studies class. Like, it's gonna be dope. We're talking about X today and it's gonna be great. Can't wait to get there, right? Like that's what we need. We don't need, uh, you know, all kinds of trumped up ways to explain to kids how deficient they are. We don't need punitive measures towards teachers or principals. We need to lift up and elevate the teaching profession. We have vacancies we can't fill, <laughs> okay? Uh, and need to fill, because folks are burning out. Um, we have principals who turn over all the time because the job is unsustainable, right? I mean, we need to lift up, elevate, wrap our hands around and love these important public institutions, and at the same time, do the same with our young people. You are correct. I am struggling to think of any example in our nation's history, more recent history, where that sort of combined collaborative reframing of an institution took place. Because I believe you and I'm with you. All of that is true. I don't want to be pessimistic and say, like, I don't believe any of that's going to happen. I think elements of that will happen in different schools and different systems, different areas where they allow um, particularly when they allow uh, teachers and teacher leaders to 
have the voice to make these things happen since teachers are the ones interacting with their with the students most uh, consistently I, I think it would not be difficult to convince teachers of this vision uh, that you just laid out it's everybody else um, particularly those in power particularly those whose success relies on hard data um, like these test scores to show that they are um, doing what's right or to show that they're they're getting there. I think even a lot of parents, unfortunately, a, 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 a lot of parents out there wouldn't want that. They would want a return to so-called reading, writing, arithmetic, because I think that's just how we're socialized when we grow up, right? We're socialized to think like in order to do well in math, in order to do well in this and that, like you just got to do hella math. You just got to read a lot. You got to, you know, do these things. So even, even con convincing parents of that vision, l large amounts of parents, obviously not all parents, I think even is a, a tall order because of how we've been raised and socialized to think about school and think about learning and to have this, you know, bootstraps type um, vision of so-called education success, you know, comes from working hard and all that. So I guess that's where we need to have more conversations, both on the show and just generally speaking, in terms of how to make these visions or how to make that vision a reality and how to actually get there. Like, what do you say to the um, whatever state superintendent of whatever state that like, we need more time for play and for joy. We need more arts. We need more uh, of all the stuff when that state superintendent is thinking like, well, math scores are down, reading scores are down. And if we don't do anything um, to, to address that in like the more traditional ways, I'm just going to be out of job. I'm not even going to be here anyways. Like, how do we do that when you have school boards out there where all these like lunatic fringe, uh, political fringe folks are, are on the school board and they definitely don't know none of that and they ain't trying to hear none of that. To them, it's all these, you know, whatever, all, all the woke stuff that you just laid out, which will get positioned as woke, um, you bet. So I guess that's the, that's the conversation I think that we need to have. Maybe it's been had in other spaces and, and I'm missing it, but I just think generally speaking, and this goes back to something I mentioned a couple of passing periods ago, generally speaking, when it comes to so-called criminal justice reform, whatever, the police unions, the police departments, whether it's a police department in big old liberal Los Angeles or a police department in rural Mississippi somewhere, they are on the same page about their thin blue line and this and that and whatever. When it comes to education and teaching, we're not on the same page. We don't have, you know, we, one reason we're not on the same page is because our profession is so different. We don't have just the clear goal of oppressing folks like um, the uh, like law enforcement <laughs> have. Like when you have one clear goal, just put everyone in their place. Things are a lot easier in that sense. Um, so our work is obviously uh, more complicated in, in the sense of we are trying to build a better tomorrow for all of humanity and try to uphold democracy and all these great uh, ideals. Um, but yeah, we're not on the same page about how and about what that looks like. And I just think that makes it so difficult to have conversations because let's, let's just face it, there's a particular type of person who would listen to our podcast in the first place. Like our AOTA family are similar with regards to how we view not just education, but how we view inequity, how we view racism, how we view just the world around us. And a lot of people in education are not of that viewpoint. A lot of people in education would listen to any old episode of ours and just be like, what the hell is that? What are these guys on? So it's just, um, it's hard for me to have hope for really substantial 
change with regards to the general framing of our public schooling and the institution of public schooling in the face of this learning loss argument. It's hard for me to have hope of a robust enough conversation around that for enough folks to be on the same page to actually make it happen. So, and maybe that's, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be, maybe I shouldn't be thinking of it that way. Maybe it's, I should just be thinking more in terms of district by district. This for sure could happen district, district by district um, for sure. So maybe it's, yeah. I don't know. Give me some hope, Jeff. Lift me up. You're, well, okay. So first of all, you're right to be skeptical. I'll just, I'll just keep it real with you, right? Like we, we don't have a good track record as a profession, of rising to the occasion in these moments, and and I, this is these are the moments where I get deeply frustrated with us as educators. Our unions are one hundred percent totally inadequate to the task of this, and I and I think will always be that. I'm, I I have no hope that they will will ever evolve in this way. Um, you know, they do a great job of fighting for salaries and workplace conditions and stuff, uh, and that's important. But they. They, they just have shown they can't be this sort of professional voice on what does good practice look like in our field. And I don't know if this analogy I'm about to make, if, if like doctors would agree that this is a perfect analogy, but many other types of professions have a professional association of some sort with state chapters, a national chapter that represents in the public discourse a voice of authority on what good practice looks like in this field. The American Medical Association, the various different boards for certain specialties and you know, within medicine, the Bar Association for attorneys, the American Psychological Association, I forget the name of it, but like social workers have a, a comparable set of, of associations. There's many professions that have a, um, an independent, whether their employees are unionized or not, have an independent professional organization that's made up of them. And I'm sure they have many flaws too, right? But like, that's a bunch of doctors who get in a room and, and help make decisions about what is good when it comes to healthcare, right? Uh, you know, and they weigh in on policy decisions. And when CNN wants to do a segment on medical stuff, they call in members of that organization or maybe the head of that organization to like weigh in on these debates about, you know, what should we do with vaccination for kids, you know, under five or something, right? They don't just ask politicians who frankly, especially nowadays in this country, are like the least of us. And we, and we should not be relying on politicians for a whole lot of anything when it comes to moral authority um, in our society. Uh, so. We need an educator voice that is going to weigh in um, on these kind of conversations, Manuel, because I, I think the reality is half of the job that we have to do from like a PR perspective is, is actually not that hard. Because I, here's, here's why I tell you, because rich people with money pay $75,000 a year to send their kids to kindergarten in schools that look like the kind of schools we were just talking about, where they have lots of time for unstructured play, where they do cool art projects, where they go on lots of field trips, where they don't have a lot of kids in one class, where there is there may or may not even be letter grades, right? Where relationships right. and personal development and kids playing instruments and all this other stuff is seen as at least like on par with just your letter grades and, and your test scores. Um, and so 
So the most privileged among us are paying for it, right? <laughs> and we help create, I will say, we as educators, I think, help create the narrative because superintendents, state superintendents, school boards don't practice the responsible use of language, generally speaking, in my opinion, at least. You are correct. Yes. Generally don't <laughs> practice the responsible use of language around assessment and the responsible pivoting from here's what the data is, it's very sobering, to here's what we're going to do about it because these are the things that we know actually support engagement, growth, learning, healthy development for young people, right? And so, like, the fact of the matter is, if you want test scores to go up, we actually want kids up and moving and having fun and talking, not sitting quietly and doing worksheets all day. Like, that is not what produces greater engagement in school and greater learning from young people. If you ask parents, I never in my entire career heard a parent be like, the, the, the thing that I care about most for my child is how they perform on the Smarter Balanced Assessment. All I want for my kid is a proficient, is a, is a, is a meets or exceeds standard score. You know what I mean? No parent says right. that. Every parent wants like, I want my kid to be happy. I want my kid to be safe. I want my kid to have friends. I want my kid to develop their talents and find something they're interested in. I want my kid to go to college. I want my kid to be successful in college when they get there. I want them to have economic opportunity and mobility. What I hear from many low-income and immigrant parents is like, I want my kid to have more opportunity economically in this hard world than I had. I want them, and sometimes folks will say it, and I like cringe inside a little bit, but I understand what they mean when they say like, I want my kid to be better than me, right? I want my child to have right. the opportunities in this unfair world, and I see education as a pathway to that, right? They're not saying I want great, smarter, balanced test scores. They're, they're saying I want my kid to learn a lot and grow and be a good person and have fun and like coming to school, right? And be healthy. And I, so all we have to do is say that back to them. <laughs> like, here's how we're going to do those things for you and your child. Yeah. Here's how we're going to support that. And it's not going to be double blocks of ELA and math and just tests every week. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to be other stuff, too. So I think we can do it, Manuel. It's I, I, you know, I don't have rose-colored glasses here. I know it's hard, but I also think it's like maybe not as hard as it seems. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I love that, and I hope it's not as hard as it seems for sure. But I do know double blocks will be easier. <laughs> so be on guard, people. Uh, be on guard, those Saturday of you, especially cool. those of you. Oh, yeah. Easy. No problem. Now we just um, need Sunday school, too. That's what it is. We'll just have Sunday school and Saturday school, and then everything will be, there'll be no more learning loss. Got it. We Pro could just combine solved. them. We could move the Sunday school, you know, I, I, churches already do Sunday school. We could just move that into the <laughs> schoolhouse. We could have those good folks over over our local churches, you know. Get, you know we don't, what do we need these teachers for? We got good yeah. folks already teaching every Sunday in church. Bring them into the school building, Jeff. Get rid of those Marxist crazy, woke, liberal teachers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So be on guard, folks. Those of you, especially those of you who work um, within the school systems, those of you who are, um, whether you're a classroom teacher or instructional aide or your district official or something else, just be on guard for those folks who try to convince you and your school system that we need to boost up the amount of minutes spent 
on math and English. We know from No Child Left Behind that that actually quite clearly does not work. Doing more of the same, just it, it doesn't produce those gains. So just be on guard as this learning loss narrative, as this weaponization of learning loss becomes more and more strong with each iteration of test scores that are released to the public. So be on guard for that, folks. You know we love you. We know we're in it together to build a more humanizing school system for everyone. And we do appreciate you hanging in there with us as we hit you with passing period after passing period and uh, continue to explore headlines and, and think about what's going on in the world of education in the midst of a so far really good school year on my end, just speaking for myself, this school year has been fantastic. Hella work, a lot of work, uh, but it's been really great. And I hope everybody else out there is having a great start to the school year as well if you are working within the system or have little ones in the system in all of that. So with that being said, I think we are done here for this week, Jeff, unless I'm forgetting anything or unless you want to leave us with any parting well, words. I did. I do realize that we said at the beginning of the episode we were going to talk about both the NAEP scores and the LAUSD scores. We gave the NAEP yeah, scores. Yeah, we, we didn't did, get to LA. We didn't give the LAUSD scores. So I'm just going to say it here real quick because we said we were going to say it. And also I want to say shout out to all the amazing LAUSD educators out there who went through hell and back taking care of kids, families, and keeping schools functioning over the last three years. I see you. I respect you. Of course, we still have a lot of work to do in service to the kids in the communities that we serve, and we will do it together. Thank you for your service. Okay, um, here, here very quickly was that data. Basically, in ELA, uh, the percentage of students who scored meeting or exceeding on the standards dropped by two and a quarter percent um, at, at the end of last school year. The percentage who now meet and exceed is 41.67%. Okay, in math, it dropped by five percentage points. It is now 28 and a half percent. Okay, so sobering data. We got work to do. Shout out to all the educators for working so hard. Let's have a great week next week. Boom. There you have it, folks. There you have it. All right. Enjoy your weekend if you are listening to this during the weekend um, or enjoy your week. If you're listening to this during the week, we do appreciate it. If it's been a minute since you've uh, rated or reviewed or given a thumbs up or or whatever your streaming app allows, um, please, please go ahead and do that for us. We uh, could very much uh, benefit and use your continued support. So we love y'all. Have a great week out there. All right. It's time for you to go ahead and get to class.